Stanford University. So I'm Sherry Shepard in the Vice Provost of Graduate Education Office, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our third talk in our series on leadership. Um, we started the series back in February with Professor John Hennessy talking with us about how he grew step by step into his leadership role and the challenges and opportunities of leading very bright faculty and students. We next heard from Miriam Rivera, who grew up, grew from humble um, beginnings to lead the legal staff at Google, growing it from a staff of two to 150 in a very short period of time. And both of their talks will be online. Today's conversation on leadership was with two global luminaries, Dr. George Schultz and Dr. William Perry. I'll leave the formal introductions to uh, these two wonderful gentlemen to Dr. Stephen Kranzner, Krasner, who is in fact championing and leading today's discussion. But first let me tell you about, a little bit about Dr. Krasner, who is also a global powerhouse in his own right. He is the Graham H. Stewart Professor of International Relations and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute and the Hoover Institute. From February 05 to, February, to April 07, he served as the Director of Policy um, Planning at the U.S. State Department. While at the State Department, he was a driving force behind foreign assistance reform designed to be more effective in targeting American foreign aid. His work has dealt primarily with so sovereignty, American foreign policy, and the political deterrence of international economic relations, all pretty important issues in this time and age. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to um, Dr. Krasner. You want to, we don't you want me to use the sit here? Um, I think I'm you could just sit there here. if that feels comfortable Thanks, Sherry. You. Sherry and I used to live okay. across the street, lived yeah. across the street yeah. from each other for many, many yes. years, actually. So. Yeah. Got to see her daughter grow up. Yeah. Um, um, one, one thing I'll say, Steve, just so people kind of understand the format. So we'll have discussion, kind of interview sort of discussion among the three of them for nominally 45 minutes. And then we'll be opening it up for question and answers for, you know, nominally 15 minutes. And then we'll have an informal reception after that. So that's kind of the, the game plan. So, Steve. Okay. It's uh, really an honor to be able to introduce George Schultz and Bill Perry. And I, I thought a bit about how to do this. So I thought what I would do is highlight their accomplishments in all of the different realms in which they both operated. So in government, um, George Schultz, who's now the, the Thomas and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at the Hoover Institution. In government, he has served as Director of the Office of Management and Budget, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of State. I believe uh, he's the individual who served in cabinet-level positions longer than anyone else in American history which aside from saying something about his competence and intelligence, says a tremendous amount about his stamina. Uh, Bill Perry um, served in government as Under Secretary of Defense, um, as Deputy Secretary of Defense, and as Secretary of Defense. Uh, they both also had distinguished academic careers. Um, George Schultz graduated from Princeton and got his PhD from MIT taught in the economics department at MIT, uh, then moved to the University of Chicago, where he became dean of the uh, Graduate School of Business. And when he returned from government, returned to the business school at Stanford. Uh, Bill Perry received his bachelor's and master's degrees at Stanford, uh, his PhD in applied mathematics from Penn State, served as a professor um, at Stanford uh, from 1988 to 1993. Uh, taught mathematics at Santa Clara University in the 1970s as an instructor, uh, as a member of the National Academy of Engineering and the American Academy of, of Arts and Sciences. Uh, in business, um, George Schultz was president of the Bechtel Group um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, is now chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International Council and chairman of the California Governors Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Bill Perry um, was the founding president of ESL, uh, served as an executive vice president of Hambrick and Quist, and as a founder, a founder of Technology Strategies and Alliances. They both, they both, as you would imagine, have numerous awards. They also have one other element, one other part of both of their biographies, which my guess is that few of you or maybe none of you in this room share, which is they both served in the American military. Uh, George Schultz in the Marines during World War II, and Bill Perry in the Army and the Reserves um, shortly after World War II in the early 1950s. So these are uh, 
men whose accomplishments in any one of these realms would have been enough to have done it in all three is extremely impressive. So I thought I would start with a question about what, what does leadership mean? What is it? Uh, and let me preface this by saying I've spent many, many years in academia. I've never taught a course in leadership, taken a course in leadership, or even seen a course in leadership. So in, for most of the social sciences, I would say we don't have very good systematic knowledge about what leadership means and, how, and in what ways it's consequential. I think that it varies somewhat from leadership in the university, companies, and government, although there are certain common strains. I used to get asked about the variety, and I had an apocryphal answer and a longer answer. The apocryphal answer is that I quickly learned when I went to business to be very careful when you tell somebody who's working for you to do something, because the chances are very high they're going to do it. Whereas in much of the government, not the Defense Department, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it, because they don't like it, they'll appeal, or they'll leak, or they'll do something. And in the university, you're not supposed to tell anybody to do anything in the first place. <laughs> but I think there is a deeper sense. Businesses, of course, have big policy choices to make. But they are very deeply executing organizations. Got to, you get something done. You execute well. That's a big part of success. Of course, that's true in any field. But at any rate, in business, because it's that kind of an organization, there te does tend to be more of a kind of chain of command. In the government, we have designed our government deliberately to be inefficient, in a sense. That is, to design it in such a way that nothing really big can happen unless it's been debated quite a lot. And that's. I think appropriate since the issues are often of gigantic importance and you want there to be a good debate. In the university, its purpose is learning. That's it. That's what we're all here for. Whether you call a student or a professor or whatever, the reason you like to be around the university is learning. And learning, after all, is something you do as an individual. So in a sense, the appropriate unit of authority in the university is the individual. It's a very different kind of complex than a business or government. But at any rate, I think if you're going to give reasonable leadership in any unit, you have to be competent yourself. You have to be willing to listen to people and learn from them. And you have to have a lot of energy. And, uh, willingness to give and take. And I believe you need to have ideas. You need to have a compass that says, this is where we're trying to go, and this is why. It gives you a strategy. I would say in government work, I saw lots of people who were perfectly capable people come in and they were sort of good at doing things, but they didn't have any ideas and they'd get lost. Ideas, which it seems to me are what the university gives you a lot of, are sort of your compass. And if you keep the ideas in mind, you've got a compass, you know where you're trying to go, and I think that's a very important trait in good leadership. In a sense, leadership is inspiring or persuading people to do what you want them to do. And it starts off, as George has implied, by knowing what you want to do, by having a vision. And from that vision, you have to communicate to people what that vision is. And if you succeeded in doing that, then understanding you want them to do this, you have to empower them to do it. There are various ways of empowering people to do it. And having empowered them, then you have to support them while they do it. That gets the whole thing in train. But leadership is more than that. It's also following up as they do the work, to put in error signals as you need to put them in, to 
I provide additional support as you need to. It's a whole process. And while the application of this is very different, as George has indicated, in the government or an in industry versus a university, the principles that I've just gone through are pretty much the same. Starting off with communicating, having the vision, communicating them, supporting and empowering people to do that, and then following through to make sure it gets done. It's pretty fundamental, actually. And that, those fundamentals apply to all three of the areas we're talking about, government, industry, and university. Yes, you. what happens, I mean, especially, I think, in business and maybe especially in government, they're in incredibly complicated environments. What happens if you set a vision and it doesn't look like it's working out? How do you move the needle point on the compass? Well, all organizations that work well are feedback mechanisms. And one of the things you want to be alert to is feedback. And it frequently happens in organizations that they get managed in such a way as they shut off feedback. People are, in a sense, don't want to pass the bad news along up the line. So your feedback isn't what it should be. So I think one of the things you want to do is create a situation where people are clearly see that they, they should give your evaluations. And you can listen to them. Sometimes you agree with them, sometimes you don't. But you want to keep the feedback open, or you won't see where you're going, uh, where you're missing out. Uh, I think probably that applies more to tactical things than to strategic things, as both Bill and I were said. You, you have an idea, this is where you're trying to go. And then executing it is, involves a lot of tactical considerations, and maybe you need to move this way or that way. Uh, I also sometimes think you're better off not to tell people exactly where you're going, because that can get them riled up too much. And a lot of your life in administering things is just coping. This stuff is happening all the time, all day long, and you're coping with it. And you know that you want to go over here. And as you're coping, you're constantly pushing things in that direction. And sometimes you don't want to announce that. But if you keep pushing things in that direction, all of a sudden people wake up and say, hey, look where we are. Not so bad. When, in 1964, I left a big company here in the Valley, GT&E, to found my own company. This was long before it was fashionable to start high-tech companies in the Valley, but, and we considered it to be a pretty scary business to do it then. I was, had in mind modeling my company after Dave Packard, Hewlett Packard's company, and Dave had a motto which he called, he said, you don't need an MBA if you have an MBWA. By that he meant management by walking around. So as I found in my company, I thought I would follow that principle. I soon learned why he said that, namely that the reports I was getting about what was happening on projects were not always accurate. Sometimes because the people who wrote them didn't know, sometimes because they didn't want to let me know what was going on. But by walking around, I was talking with the engineers, talking with the manufacturing people. I found out they knew. If there was a problem, they knew about it. Moreover, they were only too happy to talk about it. So I, I early learned that part of management by walking around is that a manager's uh, ears are more important than his mouth. You should listen to what people are saying. And you can learn a lot sometimes. The when I, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. So when I went into the government, I thought, how in the world can I apply this management by walking around on a landscape that vast? And in particular, I had the issue of what, how I was going to oversee the few million people that worked for me in the armed services. And I decided that I would visit, every two months, visit a, a military base. I couldn't get to all of them, but I could get to a lot of them. But I did something a little different. I had hosting me on that visit was the senior enlisted person of that service, the top enlisted man. 
I would fly out to the base with him. On the way, by the way, I'd learned lots of interesting things that he thought about what was going on there. We get to the base. The commanding general would come out and meet us. We would shake hands, and then he would exit stage left. And his sergeant major at that base would then be in charge of the whole day, my whole day there. And of course, all the people, the only people I saw there when I was there were the enlisted personnel. I'd have breakfast with them, lunch with them, dinner with them. We'd go out to the training exercises, and we'd talk. At, on my first visit, I wondered, will these enlisted personnel be willing to talk to the Secretary of Defense? Or will they be too shy? That turned out to be not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> they were all too anxious to unload. Well, as a result, after about the sixth or seventh such visit, I began to learn things, fundamental things. The most important fundamental thing that I learned was that the quality of our military forces, the quality of the people in the forces, was intensely dependent on the training they got. And the US military has a fantastic training program. But if you think about it a little bit, you train these people year after year. And if they leave the service after the first enlistment, you lose the benefit of that training. So the key is key, causing them to re-enlist and stay in the services. And in talking with them, I soon found out what determined whether they re-enlisted or not. It was not what they were doing, but what their family was thinking. And in short, I learned that there was an iron logic between the quality of our military forces and the quality of life of their family. And based on that judgment, which I had never would have come to on my own, based on that judgment, I actually got the president to commit $15 billion into the budget for a whole set of initiatives to improve quality of life. The details of that, of course, had come from talking with the people on these various visits. This is one small example of leadership. It's in the follow-up aspect of it. How do you find out whether things are going the way they ought to be going? And if they're not, how do you get an error signal to correct that problem? George? Bill, wouldn't you say that learning is also a way of attracting people into the armed forces? You were talking about yes. wanting to keep them in. But on the other hand, people can say, if I join one of the armed forces, I'm going to learn quite a lot as I go along. And if we have a continuation of things like the GI Bill, that sort of educational opportunity after you leave the services, you can say going into the armed forces is a way of learning. It's going to improve me. That's exactly right, George. In fact, when I visited these bases, one of the questions that, which I would often ask people as an opener, which is why did you join the Army, or why do you join the Navy or the Marines and so on. A little over half the time, the first answer I got was, is to get an education, either in the services or through the GI Bill. And many, at least half of these kids wanted to go to college and couldn't afford to. And they saw the GI Bill as an opportunity to get them to college. One of the things I did on learning that was promoted a new GI Bill, which Congressman Sonny Montgomery pushed through the Congress. And one of the few times I'd given a medal to a congressman, defense medal, was Congressman Montgomery for pushing that GI Bill through. That, was, that one act it was, had more to do with our ability to attract and keep, not just uh, service personnel, but top quality service personnel, the ones who wanted to go to college. So we were getting a, not only the quantity of people, we're getting quality of people by, by that means. Can I say, you guys are making this sound too easy. Um, you know, your concern about would enlisted men really be willing to talk to the Secretary of Defense? Well, maybe, but maybe not every Secretary of Defense. So how, given that if you're a leader, you have to present a vision on the one hand, and both of you had extremely important kind of awe-inspiring offices, which usually make people kind of step back, I mean, how were you able to, what, what, how do you think about enlisting these kind, what were really honest and very useful responses from enlisted men? Well, I think Bill gave part of the answer that he went to them. He didn't call them into his office of the Secretary of Defense. He went to there. When you go to the other guy's turf, he's, you have, get a better understanding of 
his or her perspective. And they're much more ready to talk to you than if you have them always coming to your office. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Even in the Pentagon, you can do the management by walking around. Instead of inviting everybody to your office, which was the standard, you say, well, I think I'll go down to your office and chat. And that had the, the protocol in the Pentagon, I expect it was true in all the other government offices, was when the meeting was held, the senior person, it was held in the senior person's office, and the junior person would come to his office. And it caused a real stir in the building when I would leave my office of Secretary of Defense and go out to other people's offices for a meeting. Again, you learn things by doing that, though. Another aspect of management that I always felt helped, it always seemed to me, if I could set up around me an atmosphere where everybody is learning, I'll have a hot group. That means it's open, views are welcome, information about what's going on is shared so people know what the issues are. And people really love to learn. So if you can create around you that sort of an atmosphere, then there'll be a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and uh, you'll have to send them home at night because they'll be enjoying it. On that point, in my company, this is way back in the uh, dark ages, I guess, late 60s, we started the company as an associates company, a pure associates company, which meant that all of the stock in the company was held by employees. Uh, in this area, in this sense, we deviated from the Hewlett-Packard model. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to, to attract the best people to the company. And this was a powerful incentive. Today, in Silicon Valley, sharing stock with employees or stock options is, is quite standard. In those days, it wasn't thought of. Indeed, Hewlett-Packard did not do it that way. But by making it a pure associates company, and giving all the stock to the employees, we got the best people in the, in, the, in the valley in those days. We also got, once they were in the company, we got their best efforts because it was their company. Uh, I tried, it was a little difficult to apply that same principle in the, sec in the, the Department of Defense, to be sure. <laughs> but that idea, in, in a sense, we tried to instill. And my military assistant, when he left my job, he became the commander of an, of an Aegis destroyer. You don't know what an Aegis destroyer is, but it's a powerful Navy ship. And for th three years in a row, his ship won the ship for the best-run ship in the Navy. So he, did, he was doing something right. And when he left the Navy, he wrote a book. The name of the book was called It's Your Ship. It was about leadership. And the, the, what the book meant was that every time a sailor would come to him and say, here's this problem I'm facing, should I do this or do that? And his answer then would be, it's your ship. Do what you would do if you owned the ship. He was trying to instill the concept of associates company on these sailors so that the decisions they made were the decisions that were right for the ship, not the ones that based on some set of rules which might or might not apply to that situation. So you might think of that term, it's your ship. And that concept, while it's a military concept, applies equally well. It's the closest I could come to capturing this associate, associate's idea of the people feeling like they owned the company themselves, and therefore they made the right decisions without anybody telling them about what the right decisions were. I had an experience early in my professional life that had a big impact on me. I was at the MIT economics department, and it was an unusual economics department in those days. Always been very good, one of the top places. But we had a group of people studying what was called labor economics and labor relations <laughs> issues. In those days, unions were very powerful in this country and uh, paid a lot of attention to collective bargaining issues. And we had a guy come on our faculty, I don't know how it was we ever got this done, who had no advanced degrees or anything. He had been the research director for the United Steel Workers Union. His name was Joe Scanlon. 
All he knew was how to perform miracles. That is, somehow or other, he would go into a plant that was organized by the Steelworkers Union and was in dire straits, as he would put it, so dire that managements might even listen to the people who are working there. <laughs> and he set up something that became called the Scanlon Plan that produced organized ways of people throughout the organization giving their views of what should happen and how it should go. And in effect, what he was doing was what, exactly what Bill was talking about in the ship. He was creating a sense of ownership on their part of what was going on. And it energized people tremendously. And I went around with him quite a bit and worked on it. And you could just see huge changes taking place as people took hold of things themselves, they were listened to. And it, it, when you see that, it tells you when you're the guy more or less in charge to listen to people and realize that you're supposed to know something but you probably don't know everything. And if you listen to people and give some room for people to use their own discretion on the things within their span of of um, work, uh, you're going to be much further ahead. There is a saying that summarizes it in an odd way. Nobody ever washed a rented car. <laughs> uh, Steve, let me talk a little bit about one aspect of leadership we haven't discussed much. I, I mentioned in way of passing, you need to empower people and support them. You know, but what the hell does that mean, empower and support? I give you one example to make the point. Uh, when I was secretary, my well, first of all, I must say that the job, as big as the secretary, you can't do everything, and you know you can't do everything. So you pick out a few things that you want to put your main effort on. My number one priority when I was secretary was reducing the danger from the nuclear weapons that were left over when the Cold War was over. Thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. And this was 1994, the Cold War was over, but all those weapons still existed. And in particular, we were concerned about the nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union, which had been dispersed to four different republics. Many of these republics were in social and economic chaos. So we were very concerned about that problem. As I said, it was my top, top priority to deal with that issue. Uh, I picked a team of four people to work that problem for me. As it turned out, three of them were women. They had the background, and we had to deal with Russia. They had the background, and they, they, spoke, they spoke Russian. They were dedicated to this goal. And so I empowered them by giving them these responsibility. But the question is how to, how to make them effective, how to support them so they could be effective. I just want to give you one anecdote to make the point. Our first meeting, we, I mean, the, the, ones we were, the weapons we were concerned about were in Russia, and you and former Russian Soviet republics. Our first meeting with the Russian Minister of Defense and his staff, uh, we was, he was sitting at his side of the table, this Russian general with his uniform on, and, and his, uh, his assistants were who were also, also all Russian generals, all men. I was sitting there on the other side of the table, a civilian, and I had my four people who worked this problem, three of whom were women. And attractive women, too. And the Russians didn't know what to make of this. <laughs> they, assumed, they assumed they were my consorts or something, I think. <laughs> and I could see I, immediately I was going to have a real problem. I, didn't, I, had, I, had, I thought I empowered these people to do the job, but I, they were not going to be able to do it because they wouldn't get the support they needed. So the first question, hard question to come up is from the Russian general, how, what are we going to do about thus and so? And I said, well, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll have to turn to my expert on the question, who was Dr. Elizabeth Sherwood. So I turned to Liz and said, Liz, would you tell me what we should do in that? So she gave a very good answer to the question. That surprised the Russians a little bit. And then I said, 
Dr. Sherwood is my expert on this area, and I have authorized her to do this job. And she will have my full support in doing everything she needs to get it done. Well, that helped too. But obviously, in the, in the months that followed, it was still up to her to really impress upon them that she really did know this job. Uh, the sequel to that story was in my last meeting with the Russian general, now three years later. We had had a successful program, very successful program. We had dismantled 8,000 nuclear weapons. It was a big deal. And we were feeling self-congratulatory at this point. And they, a photographer came up to take pictures. We were in the Russian general's office, and the photographer came up to take, take pictures. And he and I stood for the picture, and he stopped just before the picture was taken and said, wait a minute. He said, Liz, get over here. She should be in this picture because she's the one who made it all happen. And that was vindicated. That vindicated that she had made, impressed herself. And given this responsibility, given the authority, given the empowerment, she had impressed herself so that all of these non-believers became believers. The point of that whole story is it's, it's one thing to appoint somebody to a job, to empower them with the title and with the authority, but you also have to support them. The, the proper way to support them depends on the circumstances. In that case, uh, the, the proper way of supporting them was to be very explicit and clear to the pe people that she had to work with that she was the one that had the responsibility to make it happen. Now, I could have not done that she could have not done the job, and I, would, and I would have had to get in and get somebody else to do the job or do it myself. But if you want somebody to do the job for you, you have to really not only empower them, but support them to do it. So another aspect to leadership, Bill, I think you said it's getting people to do the things you want them to do earlier on here. But Suppose you're dealing with somebody who is your adversary, as in the Cold War days, we were dealing with the Soviet Union. And there's something you want to have happen and they aren't doing it, what do you do? Here's an example. And, and, and in general, people think the way you get it done is you, you pressure them somehow or other, you use unpleasantness. But there's another way too. During that period of time, I think this was continuous through the whole Cold War period, but in the Reagan period that I was in, it was particularly pushed. We worried about human rights in the Soviet Union and their unwillingness to let people worship the way they wished or to emigrate. And particularly there were large numbers of Jews in the Soviet Union that weren't allowed to emigrate and we were harassed a lot, and we worried about it, and we kept talking about it and talking about it. And one day in one of our meetings, my opposite number in the Soviet Union, a man named Edward Shevardnadze, the foreign minister, said to me, George, we might do something about some of these things you're talking about, but not to please you, only if we think it benefits us. And I went back to Washington and I thought about that remark. And I talked it over with President Reagan and said, here's an idea. We are in, and we're gonna be much more in, this is in the 1980s, the information age. It's gonna transform the way people work. It's gonna transform the way countries operate going to have a huge impact. And a country that is closed and compartmented is simply not going to be able to operate well in this new age. And so the way you have to get on board the new age is to open up more, give people more scope to do their thing, to communicate to move around the world, to emigrate. And I wrote this out very carefully. And one of our meetings, instead of talking sort of like this, I had this written out and I read it slowly. 
so their note-takers could take it down, literally, word by word. And I later learned from my friend Mikhail Gorbachev, who was then the boss, that it wound up being discussed in a Politburo meeting. And to some extent, I think it had an effect of them, they finally did loosen up on human rights a lot, and there was a huge exodus of Soviet Jews, mostly to Israel, some to the United States. But at any rate, in effect, I was saying to them, here's something that I would like to have done, but the reason you should do it is because it's in your interest. And I think fundamentally, if you want to get people to do really big, important things, it's really not likely to happen because you're hammering on them. It's much more likely to happen if somehow from the inside out, they think it's a good idea for them. Bill and I, with others, are working on an effort to get us to a world free of nuclear weapons. And 90% or more of the nuclear weapons in the world are in the possession of the United States and Russia. So it's obvious that if we're going to get anywhere, we're not, it's got to be with the full collaboration of the Russians. They have got to see that it's in their interest, just as we've got to see that it's in our interest. And we give a lot of thought to that. And so far, so good. Recently, there was a joint statement by President Medvedev of Russia and President Obama of the United States saying that they had agreed that they would both seek an end to nuclear weapons. So they, they're getting on board. But I think big things have to happen because you decide that it's in your interest to do that. Let me give one other example of that same point in a different field. When I was secretary of the Bosnian, we had an agreement to go into Bosnia to stop the war there. A NATO force was going to go in. Um, this was before you, the time that most of you, or you're too young to maybe remember much about it, but there have been perhaps 200,000 people killed in Bosnia in the early 90s. So it was a big, it was a really serious problem. And we had agreed that a NATO force would win as a peacekeeping force to stop all that killing and ethnic cleansing. The complication was we needed the Russians to be part of that plan. They wanted to be part of that plan, but they didn't want to be part of NATO. And for decades, in the, in the Soviet Union, NATO was a four-letter word. Even today, it more or less is. Big problem. So they wanted to be a part of that, but they wanted to send in a separate force. A separate Russian force in there with a NATO force was not going to work. It was just a formula for disaster. So the job that the president gave me was to find a way of getting the Russians to be part of the NATO force. And I had the problem George described, how to make them think that this was in their interest and that they should be doing it. There was no way we had of ordering them to do it. So I met with the Russian defense minister in Washington. We got nowhere. I met with him in Geneva a few weeks later. We got nowhere. It was always come down to the fact we'll never put our force under NATO. And then I thought of taking him out to Whiteman Air Force Base and Fort Riley. Kansas on just a friendly tour, a show and tell. Took him to Whiteman Air Force Base and we blew up a American missile silo. And he got front page on the New York Times for doing that. He felt pretty good about that. I let him ride in a B-2 bomber, which in those days was the most secret thing we had. He really liked that. We took him to Fort Riley, Kansas, let him ride on a cavalry horse. He liked that too. All of this was in sort of conditioning that he could trust us, that we weren't trying to push something down his throat. And all the while this was going on, we were talking about what was bugging him. We finally had dawned him. I'm a slow learner. By about the fourth meeting, it finally occurred to me the problem was not 
he didn't mind his force going into an American division. He just wanted, did not want to go into a NATO division. Well, of course, the United States was part of NATO. But he was willing to have his force, his brigade, become part of an American division. For some reason, that was all right, but as long as it wasn't considered NATO. As long as he could represent it as not being part of NATO. So we finally figured on a formula. It took us four meetings over two months to do it. But the key was listening to what was really on his mind and find a way of doing it that worked with him. We did finally do that. And when the forces went into Bosnia, a Russian brigade went in with the American division, with the Russian brigade commander reporting to an American major general. They turned out to be one of the most effective brigades we had in Bosnia. You don't know what the problem was there, but it basically it was the people with the Serbian background who were very close to Russia, had been fighting for years with, with the Muslims, Bosnian Muslims. The Bosnian Muslims saw the Americans as supporting their cause. The Bosnian Serbs saw the Russians as supporting their cause. We were expecting to have the kind of guerrilla warfare and harassing troops like we have today in Iraq. But we found that if we send patrols out that had both Russian and Americans in the patrol, mm -hmm. that the Serbs wouldn't bother patrols because there were Russians in it, and the Muslims wouldn't bother the patrols because there were Americans in it. We ended up that whole first year of operation with almost no casualties. And one of the reasons for that was not only because we had the Russians there, but because the Russian brigade commander came up with the idea of having joint patrols. So the key, as George has said, is we're trying to get somebody to do something that you think is impossible to do, is work hard and think hard and listen hard as to what it is that's really on their mind, what they're trying to accomplish, and see if you can find a way of accommodating that. Great, thanks. So we have a few minutes left for questions from the floor. Hi, my name is Zach Levine, and I'm a business school student and a, um, a student in the Masters of Education program. So my question for you is, when you're making decisions, what are the ethical standards that you use to measure these decisions? I always felt on something that would come up. You don't always get your way, you know. You have your views and you debate, and sometimes the president will decide against you. But I always felt that it was good to have a university seminar test. And if I felt that I could defend this idea in a university seminar, maybe not persuade everybody, but I could make a credible defense, then okay, even if I was ruled against, that's okay. But if I felt I couldn't make a defense against it, then I, this is out of bounds. Another thing, I'm sure Bill had this, they, that one of the tests is, how about if this appears in the Washington Post tomorrow morning? Would you feel badly about it? And if you would, well then you better not do it. Uh, but of course you have your own internal standards of what's right and you have to stick to them. And one of the things about these high-powered jobs, which are, they're a great privilege when you have a job like Secretary of State or Defense or whatever. And it's a great opportunity. You can make a difference in a way that you can't in uh, most any other job. But you can't want, want the job too much. You've got to feel, yes, I'm here, it's a privilege, I'm doing everything I can. But there are more important things than my keeping this job. I have got to be willing to stand up and say what I think and uh, fight for it. I'll give an example. When I was in office, there were people in the CIA and in the Defense Department who seemed to think the way to manage was to cause all of the high-level people to be periodically given lie detector tests. 
In other words, you would manage by fear. At least that's the way I looked at it. I opposed that. I thought, I, that's not the way I manage. I manage by starting by trusting people, and if somebody turns out not to be trustworthy, I get rid of them. But you start by working with people. So we had this argument, and I went off on an extended trip somewhere. And while I was away, they went to the president and somehow got him to sign an executive order of some sort authorizing this program, and it became public. So when I was traveling, the traveling press kept asking me, and I said, this is a domestic matter. I'm not going to comment on it while I'm abroad. So I get back, and we appointed really quite an outstanding group of people to help work through the South African problems. And I went down to the press room to introduce them and say what was going on. First question out of the box is from one of the reporters that was on the trip. He said, well, now we're back home. What about this program? Would you take a lie detector test? And I said, I'll take it once. Then I'm out of here. If you require me to take a lie detector test, it's a statement that you don't trust me. If you don't trust me, I don't belong here. That sent shockwaves around, and the president, after I presented my arguments to him, changed his mind, rescinded the order, and I had all I could do to help CIA to retain the ability to use lie detector tests when they really are useful, when you're interrogating somebody uh, and uh, have a basis for uh, doing that, using it. But that was an example, sort of instinctive, of saying, I'm not going to serve in an atmosphere where I'm required to do something that I don't think is, is right. Lie detector tests, you know, if you look into it, they give a lot of false positives and negatives, and people can train themselves to pass a lie detector test. Maybe biologists are inventing something better, I don't know, but uh, at the time, it was a very questionable device. <clears throat> Pretty hard to improve on that answer. I'll make two points, though. The first is that George made the point that you should not want the job so badly you're afraid to walk away from it. And I think that's fundamentally important. It's also important that your boss knows that's the way you feel. So you're not so apt to get into the situation where you have to walk away from it. And the second is that on the question of being in the Washington Post, it's not just the government jobs you're concerned about that. I remember when I was still in industri industry, there was a wave of uh, corruption in companies working overseas. They had to pay bribes to get their sales made overseas. And a reporter once asked the president of TRW, who did a lot of overseas business, what was his test for knowing how did he instruct his people who were overseas on making these kind of foreign payments? And he said his test was a simple one. He said, if the actor was being proposed, if I would be comfortable about seeing it in the Washington Post the next day, then it's OK. If I'm not comfortable, then I don't want to do it. So this test, the Washington Post test, applies to business as well as to government. Of course, there is an aspect of it that's a little bit different. I remember early on when I was in a cabinet position, and I saw an account of a meeting that I had taken part in. And I read this account, and I said, gee, I was in that meeting, and I don't recognize it. <laughs> and then I realized somebody with a special point of view had leaked an account of the meeting that suited his particular point of view, but which was not accurate. So I said to myself, I don't necessarily believe anything, everything I read in the papers. 
you have to be careful. That's another Washington Post <laughs> test. Most papers, I must say, that most papers are pretty careful to try to check things out and not get themselves caught that way, but it happens quite a bit. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. My name is Steve Hurd. I am a graduate student in the Management and Science and Engineering Department. Uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, I also have got my gray hair from working at a n National Nuclear Weapons Lab for a couple of decades. On the topic of the work you all have done in the nuclear weapons arena, um, I'm interested in understanding, you know, how you, how you can lead without needing to be forceful in this arena, especially when you have so many players involved. I don't understand. I didn't quite, I didn't get the question. We didn't you quite understand the question. How you can lead without being forceful in that arena. So how, how do you exemplify leadership without having the, the power of force, so Well, I think to take this nuclear business that Bill and I and others are working on, the first step in getting something really big to happen is to get people to see that there's a problem. And in order to see that there's a problem, it isn't enough that you get it intellectually. You have to get it in your gut. In a sense, you don't just know it, you realize it, that this is a problem. And I think that people are gradually getting it. Then you have to develop something else. Because sometimes people can feel this is a problem and it's just beyond me, there's nothing to do about it. So you have to be ready to say, yes, this is a big problem, but here are things to do about it that are doable, practical, I can get my arms around them, I can see that they're leading me to where I want to go. So that then sets up the chance to really push and take advantage of events and try to precipitate uh, what's going on. And you just hope that the first step can be taken without having people subjected to the reality. One of the things Bill and a colleague of his have done that's striking is to say, suppose there were a nuclear weapon used on one of our cities. What would happen? Particularly since probably the terrorist organization that did it would say, and by the way, we have four others ready to go in some cities I don't care to name yet. What would happen around the world? Well, it would be it would bring things to a halt. So why don't we avoid that and take action before it happens rather than afterwards? But it's all too often true that it takes a tough event to wake people up. Let me approach that question from a different point of view using the same example that George used, which is what we're trying to do in the nuclear disarmament field. When I was the Secretary of Defense, I was responsible for something called the Nuclear Posture Review, which laid out the Americans' approach to nuclear weapons. That was a lot of power to actually influence policy in this area. Now we're private citizens. We have no power to do that. And I must say, in the last couple of years, as we have been approaching this problem, I felt frustrated at times not having that power. That's offset, though, by two other factors. The first of all, we have the luxury of being able to dream ahead, which I never had as a Secretary of Defense. And secondly, we have the luxury of having the time to think about and work on. Generally speaking, both of us have been in and out of government several times. And generally speaking, the, when, we're in, when we're out of government, we're building capital, intellectual capital 
And when we're in government, we're spending that capital. So we do, there is, a lot, there is some advantages to be trying to get big ideas across from the outside instead of from the inside. Let me expand on that a little bit further and combine the answer with the question that was asked about ethics. We have a friend who works with us named Max Kampelman. And Max has a little speech that he gives that's very powerful, which he calls the power of the ought. And he says, remember the time when our Declaration of Independence was signed. All men are created equal. Are you kidding? We had slaves. Women were not, uh, did not have the privilege of voting. In fact, you had to own property to vote. So the reality was that all men were not created equal. There was a very unequal kind of situation. As Max puts it, the is was a long way from the ought. But if you keep the ought out there and keep reminding yourself of it, and we keep saying how proud we are of our Declaration of Independence, the distance between the is and the ought kind of gets after you. And of course, over the period of time of our country, sometimes with war, sometimes with all sorts of strife, but nevertheless, the is is a lot closer to the ought today than it was in 1776. So I think both, uh, and Max's uh, view is that we ought to have a world free of nuclear weapons. The is is a long way from that. So how do we get there? And by keeping the ought out there in front of you all the time, you motivate yourself to work to get the is to change and figure out how to do it. One last question. Um, woman, lady in the green-ish sweater. Thank you. Molly. Is this on? Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Molly Elgin. I'm a student in international policy. Um, and my question is, um, I think that not just leadership, but context matters. Um, and so if you're trying to make change as a leader, um, and you talked about listening to people and getting feedback, and that certainly is important. And then what happens when you go back to Washington? And, and what if it's an issue that you know, there seems to be entrenched views, or there's quite a bit of difficulty there? How do you, as a leader, work with that difficult environment and enact the change you want? Could you clarify the question once more, please? Sure, sure. Um, so we talk about leadership, right? And um, I just think that it's also your environment and your context. So um, if you come in as a leader and you have you know, uh, an idea for change or a way of changing, um, and I guess government is particularly famous for this, but I, th I think it's true in business as well. Maybe you have a board of directors that is not cooperative. How do you as a leader take you know, what seems to be a great idea, and maybe you have some support from maybe, you know, sort of lower levels. How do you get everyone else on board? Um, how do you take on a difficult environment um, where maybe, you know, there is some power at higher levels and you're a leader, but there are other leaders and, you know, other power out there in the organization? Well, sometimes you have to steamroll over them. <laughs> It, it's, I've always felt it's important not to steamroll over the people who work for you. You're trying to inspire them and bring them along. But sometimes there's a force in opposition out there that you do your best to bring along, but if you fail to do that, you have to figure out a way of either going around them or going over them. That's not a very satisfactory answer, but I've had to do that a few times. George, would you, could you elaborate on that? Or? Well, I think if you're running things in the way that Bill and I have earlier described, so that people have a chance to participate, if they then don't win, so to speak, they're much more willing to go along with a decision that they don't agree with than if somehow or other they never have a chance to get their oar in.
We're going to have a reception next, but I certainly would like to um, thank Dr. Krasner, Dr. Schultz, and Dr. Perry for some wonderful wisdom, experience, and good humor in sharing their ideas with us. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.